Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. I'm thrilled to welcome Dacker Keltner to this PCA One-on-One podcast. Dacker is the founding faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center and a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. He is also the author of Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life. Dacker received his B.A. in psychology and sociology from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he received his Ph.D. from Stanford. We're also honored to have Dacker on PCA's National Advisory Board. Welcome, Dacker. Jim, it's great to be with you. So let me start by asking, why is the word science in the title of your center? Why isn't it just the Greater Good Center? Well, that's a kind of a fundamental question. Um, what has happened in the past 15 years is there's been this explosion of scientific interest in things that we've known for a long time, right? That um, being kind to other people um, is good for society, that uh, learning how to play effectively as a child might actually benefit you uh, in the long run, that um, that practicing gratitude or forgiveness is, is good for your health and your relationships. And so um, what we really thoughtfully worked through at the Greater Good Science Center is to figure out how, how this new science of play and gratitude and touch and kindness and altruism um, really is, is, is part of a new conversation about building up stronger societies. So I think the science is really fundamental to this 21st century audience to think about the path to the good life. And so that's why we built the term science into our, our names. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, let's talk about gratitude or gratefulness. Um, why yeah. is that essential for, for individuals? And then let's expand it to athletes. Is it, uh, you know, sports is often seen as cutthroat, you know, do whatever it takes to win, being kind to uh, the other team uh, may may be a problem? Yeah, so, you know, Jim, I mean, uh, you know, I think that sports is actually a, a very powerful context in which people learn the ethics of gratitude. Um, you know, I'm just thinking about back to that, to my own experience. So we really define gratitude in the scientific literature as the feeling of reverence that is, where you really think something is sacred or precious or irreplaceable, uh, about something that's given to you. Um, and so, you know, when you survey people, and I ask people in the, the groups that I speak to or teach, what do they feel grateful about? They feel grateful for largely for other people and the gifts that those other people give them, right? So it could be the gift for uh, having an education or the fact that parents work hard to get food on the table, or that uh, very often uh, they feel grateful to mentors and to coaches, right, to people who, you know, without compensation and without obvious benefit to the self, they're sacrificing for those individuals who feel gratitude. And and the science, which you can get at the Greater Good Science Center, and, you know, I know you and I have talked about this, Jim, I mean, it is so compelling that cultivating this 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 environment and this atmosphere of gratitude where you just say thanks, you express appreciation, you get 
your groups or your teams or your the individuals you're working with just to reflect on the opportunities we have makes people uh, phys- they're happier you know, over the long run. They're 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 performing better in school. They are actually physically healthier. There are new studies um, soon to come out showing that it benefits the cardiovascular system. We found that kind of this practice of gratitude and appreciation makes um, relationships stronger. So it's just so important for society. And, you know, I think that a lot of the, the great coaching brings out this, this sense about life that, you know, you have these amazing opportunities on the athletic field or in the, on the court that are, you know, that you can use your body to do amazing things uh, and to be part of a team that really are things we should revere. You know, i got uh, two thoughts on this. One is um, Phil Jackson, when um, when he was first coaching the Bulls and the, the so-called bad boys, the, the Detroit Pistons, were dominating the NBA. And for yep. several years... Uh, the Bulls could not get past the Pistons. And and Phil actually talks about, uh, you know, there were a lot of hard feelings between the two teams, but he actually talks about the Pistons with gratefulness. Like, we could not have been, the Bulls could not have been the great team they were had not the Pistons been in our way. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and when you really push the ethic of gratitude, right, and you think about, you know, the, the opportunities that life presents you to really make the biggest difference in the world that you can make, right? Be it through your work or raising a family or being a community member. Very often, like the real, um, the real sort of testing ground of that is, is in how you handle your adversaries, right? Uh, we get this a lot in science. I mean, science is very adversarial and every study that I publish gets beat up, <laughs> by the Detroit Pistons out there who are, you know, the bad people of science who are critiquing and challenging everything I say. And, and, you know, as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate those challenges, right? Uh, so I think there's something very deep and enduring in that insight you've offered that, you know, that we, we have to look at kind of the real obstacles and even the obstacles that we feel have no principles or morally opposed to us. We have to see those as opportunities for positive change. You know, we have a, a model for athletes. Our model for coaches is a double goal coach. First goal is winning. Second, more important goal, using sports to teach life lessons. And then for yeah. athletes, it's a triple triple impact competitor. Make yourself better, your teammates better, and the game better. And uh, part of um, this is an insight that came to me pretty late, a few years ago, after all the time I spent in sports, and that is that great teams are a combination of cooperation and competition. If you yeah. and I are on the same team and we're both competing to be quarterback, I want to be the starting quarterback, you want to be the starting quarterback, we're competing against each other. Um, and if we're not competing hard against each other, the team's going to suffer. On the other hand, once you beat me out, um, I can sulk about it or I can – take the larger, I'm going to make my team better, and I can actually help you uh, by watching what's going on in the field while you're playing. Yeah, you know, and I think that very often we kind of juxtapose competition and cooperation as as mutually exclusive forces in life, right? 
Uh, and, and in point of fact, you know, and, and this is seen in all kinds of different scientific studies, you want a healthy combination of both, right? You want, you want, like you said, the competition to bring out your best and to sharpen your senses and your talents, and you want ultimately a spirit of camaraderie to, camaraderie to prevail. Um, and I think that, you know, part of, I, you know, just to return to the Greater Good Science Center, I mean, one of the reasons we chose the, the other term in that name is greater good, right? And the greater good is an idea that really is, you see in all cultures, and it's written about in the Age of Enlightenment. And it really is the idea that your actions are contributing to a much bigger thing than just yourself, right? And and this is really what you're talking about in terms of health, sort of effective athletes is your actions, yeah, you, you know, you get your own individual statistics, but they're they're about your team. They're also about the history of the game you're playing and, and your small part in it. So I think that's part of finding cooperation in really competitive settings is to think about things bigger than yourself. You know, the third third element of a triple impact competitor, first make yourself better, your teammates better, and the third element is make the game better uh, by the yeah. way you compete. Um, it's a great quote from Herm Edwards who said the, something like the you know the the game is sacred when uh when you yeah. go out on the field you need to remember what you're doing players and and coaches will come and go but the game uh is sacred and everybody loves that that quote you you used the term sacred earlier um yeah that can be a loaded term for some people it's uh it, it yeah. could be seen as a religious thing um what do you mean by sacred well i, I think that you know what people um how we think about what's sacred is it really is uh, something that is enduring and precious, and you really can't put a, a, a monetary value to it. And, and it really, I think most importantly, Jim, it, it, when people intuitively would use the word sacred, like, God, this Thanksgiving dinner is sacred. I was just talking about this with my daughter last night, in fact, how camping is sacred for us. Um, it, it, the, the really important thing that, that defines the sacred is, is what you were talking about earlier, which is that you are doing something that places you in a broader narrative in human history, yeah. right? And it's, wow, you know, I am playing the game of basketball, which is one of my favorites. And it's this great tradition that has this history and it's played in so many different ways. And, my brother played it, and you know my dad played it in high school, and uh, or my mom, and and you suddenly locate your individual actions in this this long narrative, uh, and that can come, you know, it is a charged term, because most typically people think of this as being a religious concept, but you know when you really look at how people use the concept in their own lives, um, it has all sorts of applications. It's about camping. It's about family rituals, it's about food we eat, it's so, and sports, um, you know, having the sacred game that you, you watch or participate in. So I really think it's about situating yourself in something much more enduring than who you are. That's really lovely. You used the term earlier, the practice of gratitude. Um, yeah, yeah. That strengthens, strengthens relationships and all kinds of great things. Uh, what do you mean by the practice of gratitude? Well, you know, one of the things, like like in, um, you know, I'm teaching the science of happiness here at Berkeley, and we had this massive online course that your um, your 
community might be interested in hosted through edX and and you know what this science of happiness on topics like gratitude and play and exercise and cooperation and forgiveness really started to drill down into is the understanding of how these you know almost ethical or moral uh, sentiments have social practices at their core, right? That they really are linked to what you might call everyday ethics. So gratitude is an ethical idea, like my definition of it, or the field's definition of feeling reverential towards something that's given to you. Um, That's a, a sort of a mental state, but then you should really practice it in an everyday way. You should you know, treat people respectfully. You should say thank you. You should express, when sincerely felt, appreciation for other people's effort. You should uh, acknowledge um, other people's contributions as a form of gratitude. And those are all very practical, mundane things that have these benefits of gratitude. And it's true of all of the, I think, the ethical themes that give rise to happiness. You know, I, I used to co-teach a class with uh, Joanne Sanders, who's the Associate Dean of Religious Life at Stanford and also a college tennis player and tennis coach uh, on uh, <laughs> spirituality of sports and um, yeah. talking about the practice of becoming, you know, spiritual practices people have, uh, you know, praying, meditating, uh, sometimes fasting, giving up things for Lent, et cetera. Uh, and the practice of becoming a better athlete uh, and yeah. sort of the, the things you do, the things you sacrifice, the things you, um, you know, the the pain and uncomfortableness you go through to become the best athlete you can be. I, I like the idea of uh, the same kind of a practice of gratitude of becoming the best person you can be. Yeah, and, and you know, I I think anyone who has played a lot of sports, suddenly sees that there are, there are these fundamental, you know, as you're saying, Jim, these, these really essential ethical challenges and opportunities that sports presents to people, like the idea that um, we can transcend physical pain, right? That, yeah, the body has takes its hits, and uh, that, you know, the first noble truth of Buddhism is there is suffering in life. Uh, but out of that suffering, you gain wisdom and compassion. And I think I personally learned a lot of that, um, not only growing up in a very poor area of California, but also just the physical suffering that, that sports can cause and how you become a better person out of that, you know, alongside um, just the, the sense out of sports that to be grateful and to practice it on the, the athletic field. And also the, the idea that, you know, I mean, this is where – a lot of kids first learn how to be humble. And, you know, I, I'll never forget my first Little League baseball game. We lost to the Buddhist church team 53-1, to one, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, uh, and, and it was like, I, I mean, it, it, it was like, wow, I am, I am anything but invincible. I, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, I appreciate all of the losses I've had as exercises in humility right, and how to bounce back. Yeah. You know, um, you you did uh, one of the most 
uh, interesting, compelling studies I've ever seen with uh, NBA teams and the correlation between uh, physical touch, high-fiving and patting each other on the back, et cetera. Um, can you talk a little bit about that study? I just think that's that study is something that every coach and athlete and sports parent in this country should know about. Oh, thank you. Um, well, you know, so scientifically, um, I've, as as you've been suggesting in your questions, Jim, you know, I've been interested in what are the, you know, what are the um, small things we do on a daily basis that lift people up and make our team stronger, you know, through forgiving and through expressions of gratitude and through you know, the use of the human voice where we express interest in what other people are saying as a way to convey respect. Um, and for some time, my lab at Berkeley had been interested in touch. You know, we it's, touch is uh, a very sophisticated um, communication system that involves your hand and the hundreds of millions of cells in your skin and parts of your brain. Uh, it's the first sensory system that's online when a child is born, so it's very important early in life. Um, and it, you know, the the science on touch, and, and of course we're talking about like friendly, encouraging touch, is is really pretty remarkable. It calms stress. It activates reward systems in your brain. Uh, it makes people more cooperative. It encourages kids. Like if you pat a kid on the back in a classroom, that child is three to five times more likely to try hard problems at the blackboard. So it has all these benefits. And I, uh, you know, uh, as you and I have talked about, I've played um, 30 years of pickup basketball, you know, and, and high school basketball and college basketball in France, and I, I love basketball, and I was always amazed by the, the following, what I consider to be a, a puzzle, which is, you know, in basketball, it's actually a very violent sport in some ways, you know. It's very physical. There are a lot of kind of chronic, you know, you know, you break noses and sprain ankles and bumps crash into people, lots of contact. I don't mean violent. I mean just lots of contact. And I was like, Wow. Why, why is there such goodwill on the basketball court when I play? You know, and thousands of games, and just people across every imaginable boundary feeling goodwill towards each other. And I thought, well, you know, maybe it's touch. Maybe all this touch we have creates camaraderie on the court. So Michael Kraft and I tested the hypothesis, and he's a pickup basketball player too, and played pretty competitively. Um, and he, so we coded, uh, we took the, every team in the NBA, we took one game of every team at the start of the season, and we coded, took us seven months to code all the high fives and fist bumps and chest bumps and flying hip bumps that the team showed uh, during the game. And it was about a minute and a half of touching in the game. And then we took that measure of how much they touch each other as a team, and we predicted later in the season how well would they be playing in terms of offensive efficiency, defensive helping, and so forth, really nice metrics. And what we found is the more teams touched, controlling for whether they were winning in the game or not, how much money they were making, they were playing better basketball at the end of the year. Um, and 
even, you know, it's, it's also compelling. Like some, we could actually chart, like there were some players who touched more and made their teams better. Like Kevin Garnett, who was at the Celtics at the time, was this really sophisticated toucher, and we could chart how he made his team better. Wow. <laughs> um, now, and, you know, what if somebody said... To me, what's... Go ahead. No, it's just, you know, I mean, athletes know this, and I've had so many athletes, like, come to me, and coaches, you know, I just talked to the coaches from Florida, like, you know, you know this, and you know, like, wow, that moment where you can put your hand on your your athlete's shoulder and, and just sort of get them to have the right perspective on a challenging moment in a, a game. I think it's a fundamental moment, right, that is aided by touch. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, what, do, what do you say to people who would say, well, um, correlation is not causation, and, of course, the teams that are winning are going to touch more? So, you know, you, I, I mean, so there are two things that I say. One is in the study that we did, it is what's called a longitudinal study. So we start, we look at touch at the beginning of the year. We predict how well teams are playing at the end of the year. Uh, and then we control for were they winning in the game? Were they expected to be a strong team at the start of the season? And how much money were they making? So, you know, we're controlling for variables that would influence how much they touch. And when you take all of those influences out, you still see this benefit of touch, right? Um, and then the second counter is is the, the lab evidence where, you know, that I've partially reviewed, which is if, you know, experiments, if, if you have someone touch a participant or not, that participant who's touched in a cooperative way is more cooperative, they are more likely to volunteer, they feel less stressed, they are um, better at certain kinds of tasks. So those kinds of evidence start to help help us tell a causal story. How, um, you know, our, our mission is uh, with youth sports, high school and youth sports, um, what would you say to high school coaches, youth coaches, um, what what can they do to uh, you know get their get their their players to be uh, appropriately touching each other more? I think you've been quoted as saying that that kind of touch actually gives life to individuals and to a team. What, what would you say to coaches about how they could how could take advantage of this study? Well, you know, you know what I and and it even gets more complicated. Well, what I would tell coaches is that touch is this incredible language of camaraderie that organically develops in sports, right? And it varies from sport to sport. And and I would, like any sort of practice that we've been talking about, I would, A, I would encourage coaches to be really powerful role models, right? So, you know, just to kind of create a, a, a very intelligent language of touch within the team. Um, and, and I would, you know, encourage, um, a playful approach to it of just making it part of the team's identity is, you know, specific patterns of touch and fist bumps and, uh, things like that. You know, I teach this to even more in more complicated settings, like I teach it to workplace organizations where, yeah, it's really interesting. Can they, 
they immediately, I say, now I'm going to tell you about the science of touch and how it makes teams stronger, more cooperative, healthier, and better performers. And they're like, well, we can't touch each other at work. I'm like, well, but what happens? They say, well, we all, you know, hug or fist bump or high five. And, and it's, you just want to become smarter practitioners of, of the language. Yeah, I love that. It's uh, an incredible language of camaraderie. That's that is a great, uh, great description. Um, you know, you've done some research about awe and how that yeah. motivates attachment to leaders. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So you know, we've gotten interested in the feeling of awe, which is when. Um, you feel that you're in the presence of something that's bigger than you or your life. And it's something that you don't immediately understand with your current knowledge or understanding of the world. Uh, and very typically people will feel it, um, you know, when they see the giant sequoia trees or when they hear an incredible piece of music or they're at a political event or a rock concert or, um, they're, they see, you know, I love this form of awe, which is uh, where they see somebody do something noble that just astounds them, right? Like, my God, that, that person just gave away a bunch of money to help this cause. Um, and we started with the idea that awe is a very interesting part of the human emotional repertoire because uh, unlike a lot of impulses and drives, what awe does is it makes you a better community member, right? It, it, I believe, came into our evolutionary story to help humans sort of be strong group members, which was essential for our evolution and our survival. Um, and, and the data, Jim, are incredible, which is, you know, we're finding little bursts of awe. Um, say you're out in nature around spectacular trees or you are – We've studied uh, inner-city kids who go whitewater rafting with the Sierra Club. Or you, um, you are around a giant T-Rex skeleton, um, things that are big and amazing. Those brief experiences of awe make people more charitable, more kind, more cooperative. Uh, they make them more humble, more interested in other people. They perform better on scientific tasks and their immune system looks stronger. Um, so we're really excited about the, the power of awe as something to think about as a culture. And how, how, does that, um, how does that relate then to leaders who you know, want to get great things done? Well, I think, I think it's, you know, I, you know, it's really interesting. I think that, um, you know, coming out of the leadership literature, I, I think there's, there's an old idea of leadership, which is I am the kind of the charismatic leader, charismatic coach that will, will awe my, my individuals into successful performance, right? And in point of fact, there are a lot of new data coming out by people like Cameron Anderson at Berkeley that um, when we act in this domineering, awesome way, the teams we lead are actually less effective. And, and so I think the challenge of leadership is to give the the individuals you're leading the sense that, that really it's really the team that is, is awe-inspiring. It's the community or the, like we've been talking about, or the sport, right? 
that is is really what triggers these beneficial feelings of awe. Um, and that requires a different leadership approach. So there's a little bit more humble, a little bit more other-focused. Um, so I think it has rather counterintuitive implications for how to lead effectively. Since you're a, a huge basketball fan, I assume you've been watching uh, March Madness. I have. Is that true? Any, uh, anything happened there that uh, you would put in the category of awe-inspiring? Oh, <laughs> well, you know, I used to teach at Wisconsin, <laughs> and uh, my friends who are Badger fans are pretty awestruck right now. And, and I think, you know, it's I think they're one of these classic examples of, in a way, what we've been talking about, which is, you know, a team, a team first that is profoundly a team. Uh, that where the the sum of the parts is bigger than the individuals, and um, they're really uh, they are participating in a pretty deep philosophy about basketball, right? And you and I have been talking about like what is it about the the team and the sport that it is the set of principles that guides your play? And I think the Badgers have that. So I think they're they're our awesome team for the Final Four. Um, and so we'll see how they do against Duke, but uh, Tonight, it's yeah. a pretty inspiring <laughs> story. You know, you know um, Aaron Harrison from Kentucky, uh, you know, Kentucky was, uh, I, I thought uh, they were just a really fun team to watch through the season. They really yeah, played together. They had all this talent, but they really, they really bought into the team. And um, yeah. Aaron Harrison, I think, reflecting some uh, disappointment. Yeah. Um Made a, a comment about Frank Kaminsky for um, for Wisconsin, yeah. and yeah. I was, you know, I hadn't thought of it before. But your term of awe, I thought immediately Harrison. He didn't he didn't uh, hedge on his apology. He just apologized. He called Frank Kaminsky, yeah. and Frank said it's over. He apologized. Yeah. I mean, I just thought that was a really lovely exchange. All of us can be in a situation where we're going to say or do something under pressure that we'll feel embarrassed about later. And I just thought the way both those players, one from Kentucky, one from Wisconsin, responded, it was really lovely. I agree. And, and I think that, you know, I mean, it's, as all the basketball players out there, and, you know, they know that there's a special language on the court of trash talking and so forth that has a, a positive edge to it in some ways, right? Um, and I think that was really the driving force of that slur. And I agree. I mean, I, you know, think about um, what those guys did and all the pressure they were under, right? And really, lots of money at stake and tens of millions of people watching. And for him to immediately take responsibility and call him and apologize, I wish other leaders in the world were demonstrated that kind of ethics. So I, I was impressed, too, completely. You know, um, I, I went to your website yesterday to prepare for this this conversation, and one of the things on there is about self compassion. Yeah. And I think there's um, I think there's a, a idea that the way you get better is to be really hard on yourself. And yeah. I don't think the research shows that. Could you talk about that? It doesn't. You know, and. and um, 
you know, it, um, the research shows that if you are really convinced that you can be perfect and uh, that you can excel in, in these ideal ways um, in academics or in your personal life, in your emotional life, and in sports, that creates a um, state of anxiety. Uh, it, when you bump into the inevitable failures of life or the where you don't do as well as you thought, uh, people become ashamed. Um, and it also can create a uh, kind of a feeling of disengagement from the activity, right? If you really are hard on yourself and always seeking perfection. Uh, and so, you know, the, the literature on self-compassion of Kristen Neff and others is really finding, you know, and it's it's really back to some of the themes we've been talking about, Tim, and it's a really good question you asked, which is self-compassion is about accepting your pains and your failures, right? And so for athletes, it is really important to embrace losing um, as, as just one instance where life uh, presents challenges. Uh, it's really important to be self-compassionate, to situate yourself in a larger narrative about your life, right? To situate the moment in, in a larger narrative. So, you know, right now in my scientific career, when I get bad reviews and I've gotten them, you know, or I have papers rejected or grants rejected, uh, have an off-day teaching, I have to take that moment and situate that that loss, if you will, in a larger narrative about who I am as a scientist and a professor and somebody who's a citizen. So, um, and then you you really have to um, uh, just kind of not judge your your momentary effort in a kind of a self-relevant way and just treat them as part of the game. So I think there are enormous lessons about that science for athletes who, you know, the D1 athletes here at Berkeley, and I, and I know you know, all over the country, there is a lot of pressure on these young people. And just to, to remember to treat yourself kindly. And, you know, most typically, my hunch, and you probably know more, Jim, is, you know, the great performers uh, in sports have that quality. It's like, you know, there's just a lot. And I've got a long career to do great things. Yeah, Dacker, that's that's beautiful. Um I, I was at a, a seminar a while back, and somebody said, and I wrote it down immediately, he said, uh, gentleness with self is the gateway to courage. And yeah. I was thinking about if you, you know, the old idea, you beat up on yourself and that makes you tougher. I think what it often does is it makes you not try hard things. Um, yeah, I agree, you know, absolutely. And and I think, you know, that's, I, you know, the science isn't there yet, but I think your hypothesis is absolutely correct, which is if you don't take yourself so seriously and you're kind to yourself and know that things change, it gives you this courage, you know, to try tough things, to try hard shots or whatever it is. So I think you're right that self-compassion is a pathway to courage. You know, um, th this is, uh, Dacker, this is an incredible uh, interview, and I'm just so glad we're going to get a chance to share it with, uh, you know, thousands of people out there. Uh, a couple a couple more questions. One is uh, I've become really aware 
recently of um, just how much stress. You mentioned this about you know Division One athletes, but but yeah. kids in uh, you know really elite high schools uh, in Silicon Valley yeah. who seem to have everything going for them and they're just under incredible stress. How can coaches? Uh, how can they help kids deal with that stress? Well, you know, I, I mean, I th- I think, you know, the data are pretty clear, Jim. Um, our teens today, you know, and I have two teenage daughters. Um, they are working hard, harder than I worked when I was a teenager 30 years ago, 35 years ago. They are learning more. They are doing harder work academically. Uh, don't believe all the hysteria. The kids today are smarter than people were 30, 40 years ago. Uh, they're playing sports harder uh, and at a more competitive level, right? So there's a lot. And then, obviously, the economy is a little bit tougher. It's harder to get into colleges and the like. So, you know, this is a very familiar story in American society. And, and so as a result of that, um, we, when you look at the broad um, historical data, uh, teenagers are more stressed today than they were, you know, 30 years ago, um, for very good reasons. And so, I think that you know what we, what coaches can do, and, and it's it's so interesting because as any parent will tell you, teenagers need to separate from their parents because they're starting to grow into young adults, and they're not going to get as much wisdom from the parents as parents would wish. And, and, and they will look to, very hungrily, other adults in their lives, right? a person in a church or a person in their community or uh, friends of their parents or coaches. And kids uh, get profound lessons from coaches. And so, you know, I think that the material that we've been talking about is fundamental to ha- teaching kids to handle stress. What coaches can do is, yeah, they really should, uh, you know, the science says um, cultivate some gratitude. Uh, secondly is um, practicing kindness, which we've talked about here and there, of just, you know, creating in sports a way of forgiving or saying you're sorry or sharing. Uh, a third one that um, we haven't talked about is the kind of the mindfulness literature of, you know, the there are really easy secular ways to for coaches and for teachers like myself to have the kids stand together, get them to breathe a little, reflect on where they are, be quiet for just a moment, right? Even 30 seconds. Now, we know scientifically those have stress-reducing benefits. And then I think that, you know, you hit upon it earlier, uh, uh, two final things, and sorry to go on about this, but, you know, Teach kids how to play and laugh, right? I think every practice should have some laughter in it. Um, Every family dinner should have some laughter. Every class should have some laughter. Uh, And then finally is the the thing we've been talking about earlier today, which is narrative and sacred. Like, just remember, help kids know that the tough stuff they're going through right now as a 16-year-old or 20-year-old, stresses and the like, it's part of a long life and a long story that has lots of good plot twists and, and developments. Wow, that's that's beautiful. Um, I'm glad you brought up mindfulness. 
we have a number of fantastic uh, practitioners of sports psychology on our national advisory board, uh, along with you. And um, Charlie Marr, who's with the Cleveland Indians, uh, one of my favorite people, and he has a phrase, you know, how do you help uh, how does he help the Cleveland Indians? How do you help baseball players become major league players? And his phrase is mind in the moment. Um, yeah. Exactly. And I just thought that's a great way of talking about mindfulness. If you can't control your attention, you know, you just, you probably can't do much of anything. And it's just uh, uh, really seeing what used to be kind of, you know, sort of new agey ideas about mindfulness and now seeing how uh, what sports psychology is doing coming together, these sort of ancient wisdom kinds of things being uh, proven out in uh, the high-stress world of of elite sports. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Jim, when, you know, I've been teaching mindfulness for a long time, the breathing practices and directing your attention, and the way that I would get, and sometimes I teach it to young boys or, or skeptical audiences, right, and I would say, take a look at the person who's shooting the key free throw, right? or the person throwing the three-and-two pitch on the, the base, the softball mound or the baseball mound, and they, if they're going to do well, they're going to have a little bit of mindfulness in, in there. Even if they don't call it that, they're going to breathe, they're going to settle down, they're going to think about their body and the, the process. Uh, so I, it, there's mindfulness all over sport, um, and it's a great thing that coaches can teach kids. So um, last uh, question, there's two parts to it. If you could recommend one book for coaches to read, and then I'm going to ask you the same thing for athletes. Does anything come to mind? Um, wow. Of course, your book. <laughs> Born to be good. I would, well, first of all, I would tell them to go to the Greater Good Science Center um, because, you know, and but I have some books that I would recommend. And the greater, so the Greater Good Science Center, you know, as you know, Jim, uh, you know, we spent 12 years cultivating writers to write pieces about the science we've been talking about today that are not, they're, they're not academic. They're for every interested human being. And, and we've just found that those essays on gratitude or cooperation or altruism or touch or kindness or compassion or mindfulness, uh, it really is viral. And, and I can honestly recommend those because they've been in books. Uh, so that would be one. Um, I think, um, I think for students who, for athletes who are really, uh, grappling with, um, stress, I would read Robert Sapolsky's Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And what the athletes will learn is stress is very natural, part of of our nervous system. There are certain things that make us too stressed, uh, like ruminating about things or feeling threatened. And then there are things that we can do to convert that threat into a, an empowering sense of challenge. So I would read that book for the athletes. I wish my new book on power was out, because that would be a good one for coaches. Uh, so maybe we can talk about that some other time. Um, yeah, let's, let's, plan for, let's plan on doing another. Let's plan on doing another podcast when that book comes out. That'd be I'd love to. Um, and um, you know, I think for coaches, 
Um, they might want to read Carol Dweck's mindset book, um, okay. which is just a, you know just about teaching people how to think about growth uh, in life and change and positive development. I think that could be a very powerful tool. Thank you so much. So um, I, w- I want to just uh, do a shout out to to Tom Hornaday. Tom and his wife Ruth Ann were. Uh, yeah. You know, founders of uh, financial founders of your center and Tom was the one who connected you and me uh, some time ago and just wow. thank you for um, the great work you're doing and and thank you so much for being part of the positive coaching alliance movement well I have learned so much from sports and it's an honor to be part of your team Jim it really is and thank you to Tom and Ruthann. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.